0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Chantel Pratt, is a professor at the University of Washington in the departments of psychology, neuroscience, and linguistics with affiliations at the Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences, the Center for Neurotechnology, and the Institute for Neuroengineering. A cognitive neuroscientist by training her interdisciplinary research investigates the biological basis of individual differences in cognition, with emphasis on understanding the shared neural mechanisms underpinning language and higher level executive functions. Her work has garnered multiple awards and has been profiled among other places in Scientific American and National Public Radio. Her recently published book, The Neuroscience of You, How Every Brain is Different and How to Understand Yours, is the subject of today's interview. So Chantel, welcome to Delving In.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to dive deep with you.
0: Okay, thank you. First of all, how did you get interested in neuroscience, and what motivated you to write The Neuroscience of You?
1: Those two questions are related, so happy accident. And speaking of an accident, it was a famous accident that got me interested in both neuroscience and in specifically individual neuroscience. And this is the pretty famous story of Phineas Gage a railway worker who suffered a, an, an explosion that blew a railway spike up and through the right front frontal lobe of his brain. And I was 18 to maybe early 19 years old. I was a pre-med student and I needed to take one more class before applying to gradu- uh, to medical school. I needed a social science class. And I found a psychology class just by chance. It fit into my schedule. I was working during the day selling shoes. It's like such a serendipitous event. And in this psychology class, the instructor told the story of Phineas Gage and how this accident that ablated part of his frontal lobe, left him a different person. So it's remarkable that he literally walked away from this accident, even with today's technology, that would be miraculous. But he changed. He went from being a responsible, de- dependable kind of foreman type to a the way his doctor described him was fitful and irreverent. He couldn't stay on task. He was They called it prone to animal instincts or uninhibited. And it just hit me like lightning that here I was studying our body and all these organs and what they do, and that your brain is the organ that makes you. In that moment, I realized that when you change the brain, you change the person. And I needed to understand how that worked. So I shifted from studying medicine to studying psychology and neuroscience. And since that time which was nearly 30 years ago, I've been developing the science that allows us to study the relationship between the mind and the brain at the level of the individual. That's what motivated me to write the book as well. I feel like what I found out quickly when I shifted into studying neuroscience was that surprisingly, the traditional paradigm for studying sort of the relationship between the mind and the brain takes a group average approach. They look at how groups of people perform in different circumstances and treat the particularities or quirks, things that vary across people, are treated as noise in this kind of paradigm. We just average them out. We treat them as statistical noise. So I was both excited about this opportunity to figure out how our individual brains shape the way we understand and move about the world, and frustrated to find that we didn't really have the tools or the paradigms or that this wasn't a traditional approach to studying neuroscience. So, so that's what I've been working on, and that the book, The Neuroscience of You, was the culmination of these 30 years of uh, pathfinding in many ways of figuring out how are we different, what are these spaces? And how can I explain this to others so that they can know themselves better?
0: Yeah, one thing I wanted to mention about your book is that it's written for definitely for a general audience, and it's written in a very engaging way, starting with the title. I <laughs> mean, the neuroscience of you. It's a very informally written book, but with a lot of content, and so it seems to me that one of your motivations was not just to talk about these things, but to talk about them to a general audience and to to get people interested in in their brains and and how, how brains make us who we are.
1: I feel really um, thankful that you had those opinions or insights about my book. So I had two goals when I wrote it. One was really to talk to real people and to bring non-neuroscientists into the conversation about themselves through their brains. But I also feel like a lot of neuroscience books that are written for public audiences are very watered down, sometimes to the point of being almost inaccurate and so I had these two goals. One is to make a book that was more accurate than the average book on the shelf because it uncovers these individual differences that are often ignored and also to make a book that's accessible. And I realized how many, in how many ways those two things compete with one another and how hard that goal was. And I, I, I hope that my understanding about how different brains work allowed me to find different ways in to connect with my readers. So I might be talking about how a car works, or I might be talking about what it would be like to be Beyonce. I try to use very different real world examples that can tap into very different backgrounds and very different thinking styles to explain these complicated things. These Some of the things I talk about in the book, like neural synchronization, brain rhythms, neurochemistry, are there things that took me five years to figure out and maybe another year to think about well enough to write about it. So it's like, how do I talk about multi-voxel pattern classification techniques and MRI in a way that somebody who's never thought about how people analyze brain data can appreciate? And it
0: was hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we have the subject matter that's incredibly complicated and difficult. And the brain is extraordinary. It's the most complicated thing that we know of so far in the universe. And yet. Uh, information about the brain has been hyped to death in in the media. So it, it's hyped in such a way that I think it gives people a, a, a kind of a false understanding in a way that that is as if we know more than we do. But we there's actually we know so little because it's so complicated.
1: That's so true. And and I start the book with that admission, like we know very little. And here I am talking about much of the science that I talk about is published in the last five to ten years. And so in five to ten more years, this might be different. But at the same time, I feel like the books that I've read about the brain take one of two. There are many different kinds of books about the brain. Some of them are very good, but I think they either oversimplify or in the effort to be accurate, they get you get to a point where the answer is it's complicated and you don't have any sense of what the mechanisms are. It's complicated. Is there anything I can take away from what we know right now? And so it is complicated, and we do know very little. And I think that this is an important, humbling first step to understanding the brain. But there are things that we do know pretty well and that most people don't know. How the two hemispheres work differently and how that varies between people. And
0: Yes, so we'll definitely get to that. That's so one of the main topics I want to talk about. But before we do, I want to ask a question. This is a pretty big question, so take your time with it. How might a basic knowledge of the brain, with emphasis on basic, change how a person relates to themselves and others? Because in a way that's the aim of your book.
1: It is so much, and I'm so thankful that you put the others piece in there. For me, the reason I'm taking a, a pause here is because for me, through my lens, through my brain's lens, shaped by my experiences and my knowledge, it's impossible to think that a person could ever understand themselves without knowing how their brain works. I guess from the 19 year year old version of me who had this aha moment that realized all the ways our brain changed the self to now steeped in that world for 30 years, it's hard for me to appreciate how a person could even start to think they understand themselves without knowing all of the ways that their brains filter, augment, shape, change create their version of reality and move them through the world and all the ways that brains work differently. And that's where we get to the other part. So one thing that I think some people who read understand that it's not the case that our eyes are video cameras taking in the world and our ears are microphones recording sounds around us. We have this perception, this feeling But this is so far from the actual truth. Instead, our senses are sampling bits of the world and our brains are doing all of this rich creating and storytelling and perspective making that gives us the illusion that we're just taking things in continuously and in a non-filtered way. And because you have this perception, I think that the most important story our brain tells us and the most consistent story our brain tells us is that we are sure about what's happening around us. It removes uncertainty. It removes all of the deciding about ambiguous stimuli that it does. It removes all of the, a lot of the inferences and filling in the blank that we do. It makes us feel like these things that we've built, this world building that we've done is actually in the world and not in our brains. And when you get to a place where you're having a conversation with another human, with another brain, with different perceptual filters about something that just happened, particularly if it's a relationship and it's a conversation you had, and this person's version of the truth is so different than yours that you feel like they must be lying to you or they must be trying to convince you of a different version of something you both experienced and what can be happening. That I, I have learned even in my adult life to appreciate that the truth is so, there's your version, my version and the truth, which is something in the middle, right? So when you understand these mechanisms of the brain, these world building, memory building, deciding, perceiving mechanisms and how they work differently in different people, I think the sort of most important thing that can happen is that you can build back in this uncertainty about your version of the truth and while that might feel disadvantageous if you're trying to cross the road and figure out where a car is in time indeed it is Um, when it comes to perspectives or conversations or beliefs or more complicated sort of ideas i think that um, building in this uncertainty understanding that your brain is deciding a bunch of things based on its design principles building in this uncertainty can help you to feel curious when you come into contact with a person whose brain doesn't work like yours, rather than feeling defensive, no, I'm right. You can say, how might the information processing mechanisms of their brain be different than mine? How might their past experiences have shaped their brain to decide that this is the way things happened?" How might my past experiences have shaped my brain to decide the way things have happened? And so I think that understanding your brain allows you to understand what it's doing for you, how it's processing the world around you. Understanding different brains opens up the possibility of learning from and with a person who doesn't work like you rather than feeling defensive and that you're, there's a right or wrong way to see the world.
0: Yeah, so a minute ago, you talked about people perceiving the truth and maybe another way to put it is perceiving reality.
1: Correct, yeah. And the question
0: is, does anybody perceive reality? No one perceives it directly. It can only be, it has to be mediated by the brain, but it can be mediated differently. And the brain, of course, can't pick up everything. We pick up what we pick up and not everybody picks up the same thing and not everybody picks it up the same way. And not everybody has a brain that, comes to the same conclusions about even what they see visually so for instance there's the famous example of the blue dress which you mentioned in your book that some people see it as blue and some people see it as gold how can that possibly be it's got to be one thing out there right and presumably it is i mean it's the frequency of light that it's sending off is, is the same for both people and yet it's perceived differently because we don't just perceive things in isolation we perceive them taking other things into mind, like the quality of the light around it. And then that became a whole genre of of art called op art, where it's playing with how the brain sees things.
1: It's a beautiful example.
0: Yeah. So I I think you're talking about a way of promoting tolerance for other people. Realizing that no one has direct access, absolute access to to reality.
1: That's right. That's right. And we don't have complete direct access. We have we do the sampling and it's translated through our brains. As you said, in your um, comment, there were a lot of things. We, we don't pick up the same pieces, right? It's Reality is continuous and infinite and our brain is discrete and finite. So it's like a connecting the dots experience and the dots we sample are not the same. Like We learn from our experiences what is important and what to attend to. And based on what has been important in our decisions in the past, people will sample different things in this continuous infinite environment but we also use a database that's stored in the connections in our brains between our neurons to figure out what else is going on right so we sample down sample the world if you will and then we rely on this internal model of the world to flesh out the pieces that we didn't directly take in and that's another way that people can misalign one of the things that I learned a lot about in writing the book, going back to this, how does it help us see others, is this idea that brains of a feather flock together. So I think that without a consideration of this reality augmentation feature of the brain, what happens is that we naturally gravitate toward other people whose brains work like ours. So over the past really five years, social neuroscientists have been doing these progressively bigger and uh, more complex and more fascinating studies where they, I think in the, one of the most impressive demonstrations of this. They created a social network of an entire village in South Korea. So they surveyed every member of this village and asked, do you know, here's a list of all the people in this experiment. Do you know them? Are you friends with them? And then let's say person A is friends with person B, but doesn't know person C, but person C knows person B. A and C are linked indirectly through person B, right? So you can be directly linked. You can be one person away, two people away. And what social neuroscience has shown us is that you can predict who will be friends with whom based on the similarity in how brains work at rest when people just relax in the scanner and let their minds wander. So this is like a connectome of the way information flows through the brain. So long as people live close enough together to have had casual contact with one another, the more similar your brain works to another person, the more likely you are to be friends. And this is true even when you account for things, demographic things like age, race, sex, and things like personality, which seem to be a a driving factor. Of course, personality would also shape the similarity between your brains. But even when you remove those things similarity in how your brains work, predict who will be friends with whom. And I think that's because we understand other people through a lens of ourselves. Our innate instinctive ways of understanding others is through mirroring. So we watch somebody behave, we have observable cues, including their words, their language, their body language, their decisions as they move through space. And we imagine that we were in that, if we were saying that thing or we were creating that action, what would we be thinking? And I think this communication style works really effortlessly for people whose brains work the same, shaped by similar experiences and so forth and so on. But if your brain doesn't work like that person, then you get misalignment, and you get you find yourself saying they make stably bad decisions or things like that, and that's really because you're you're thinking about what decision you would make based on your values and experiences and that.
0: Yeah, this might be like the neurological of soulmates. Someone feels like a soulmate when they see the world similarly to the way you do, and it's very validating. Whereas to be with somebody who sees things completely different, like we're seeing that in the political arena, for instance, and not just in this country. But as you point out in the book, this is probably true for social relationships, but for working relationships, it's often better to have teams with people who see things differently for obvious reasons, because you're more likely to solve a problem if you can see it from multiple angles.
1: And I actually think it's interesting because one of the best determinants of who will be in a relationship is proximity, right? Even in these social experiments, you've got to come into contact with one another. And I talk a lot about me search in the book and the things that I've learned in the lab and how they mesh through the things I've learned through my lived experiences. My husband and I have a lot in common. He's obviously, he's also a cognitive neuroscientist. I think most importantly, we both see the world through this lens of how our brains are taking in information and massaging things for us. But he works quite differently from me. So um, he is, he does not think verbally, thinks in pictures. He is uh, quite, strongly what I call D2 or a stick learner. It's like he is very sensitive to how when actions don't work out according to plan. So anytime we're like deciding how to do something, I'm thinking here are four things that can be really cool. And he's thinking here are nine reasons that his plan is doomed for failure. So I think it's wonderful when you when you find someone who thinks like you, it feels good and it feels validating. And I'm not sure if it's exactly the same as being a soulmate, because we also have this like opposites attract thing where I think that even in a partner intimate partnership, different thinking styles can be very advantageous. If you have the knowledge and the communication tools to be like, not like you're right and I'm wrong, but here's another perspective, or here's what I'm noticing.
0: So the next part I wanna talk about is the teasing out of nature nurture that you point out, and you're certainly not the only one to point this out, that they're incredibly intertwined, or or sometimes the way I like to put it is, which is a nature-nurture? Yes, it's 100% nature and 100% nurture. They're always interacting with each other. And you make an excellent point that even some inherited features like extroversion, physical attractiveness can affect the way people treat you. So your inborn traits can actually affect your environment indirectly. And so it's really complicated and trying to tease these two things out are almost impossible.
1: That's right. And I think the one reason why I think this is important to understand is that when people think about biological differences, which is what I'm talking about when I talk about how your brain makes you, there are some misunderstandings that come along with that. So just because I say your brain makes you this way or your brain is shaping the way you understand the world in this moment in time it neither means that you were born predestined to be this way, nor that you cannot change. So I think that sometimes in certain circumstances, people feel a little strange about this idea that your brain is making you the person you are because they feel like I'm saying this is 100% genetics or this is immutable. And and I think what we inherit are a, a range of Predispositions and possibilities, right? So we inherit aspects of brain function that then shape our interactions with the world, that then shape our brain, that then shape the actions that we take. That so it's very iterative, and the relationship is even more complex. So what we're learning about epigenetics tells us that even given a particular sort of a DNA profile, the ability for genes to produce the proteins that drive these behaviors can be turned off and on in different environmental circumstances. So that part of your genome that's working to build you at any given time can be different in different environments. So it's just very complicated.
0: Nowadays, we use the analogy of computers, that the brain is like a computer. And in, in, in Freud's day, the most advanced machine was a steam engine, so he used steam engine analogies. But now we use <laughs> computer analogies, and, and I'm sure it's going to fall short. It'll fall less short than steam engines. But, <laughs> but if you're going to really use the analogy, it would be as if when you program a computer, it changes its circuitry, not just the software, but the hardware. And of course, that doesn't happen. So that's why that's one reason why the analogy is not so good. Uh, the other reason is that brains are incredibly massively parallel in their processing. So uh, neurons are connected to so many other neurons at the same time. Whereas computers, at least as they're designed so far, are much more like flowcharts. And our brains are not like flowcharts, they're much more complicated than flowcharts.
1: That's right. And as you mentioned, like the brain is changing in every millisecond sometimes in ways that are not noticeable by you or your information processing, but sometimes in ways that are revolutionary.
0: So for instance, an antidepressant medication is supposedly changing your brain, but so is talk therapy. Every Everything is changing your brain.
1: Exactly, and I think that this is one of my weights that I carry when I move through the world as a neuroscientist and why I try to be extremely accurate when I talk about science, because there's this idea, this substantiated idea of neuroseduction where people will use brain-based X to validify their approach to whatever, like brain-based feedback for the workplace or brain-based teaching. And for me, it's, I defy you to give me an example of a non-brain-based teaching or a non-brain-based feedback.
0: Yeah, that's part of the hype. It's a kind of brain supremacy that somehow if it's brain, it's physical, and if it's physical, it's biological. And if it's biological, it's somehow deeper or more permanent or more valid somehow than other forms of change, which is not true.
1: Exactly. Absolutely correct. And I think there's another side to this that's worth discussing because I, when I'm talking to like eminent organizational psychologists or therapists, and they say, if I know that this behavior is predictable, if I know these things about a person's personality or these behaviors, and they explain how this person will do X, Y, and Z, why do I need to understand? how the brain works, which goes a little bit to your first question. And hopefully I gave some ideas about the self-exploration of that. I think that there are situations in which a behavior can look the same driven by two different neural pathways. And particularly when you want to intervene with something like depression or a learning person who's having challenges learning to read, I think the brain can give us hints about why you're performing at that level. So oftentimes kind of everything needs to go right for you to be successful, but there are a lot of different paths that can lead to difficulties. And the difficulties can look on the surface at the behavioral level the same. And so I think the brain can be really important indicator for what to do next. For instance, the work of Greg Siegel has shown that you can predict from fMRI which people will respond well to medication versus talk therapy versus a combination of the two. This was like, I don't know, 15 years ago, but there are some interesting things there. Understanding the relationship between the mechanisms that drive the behaviors and the behaviors
0: Yeah, and then another kind of somewhat related point is that uh, it used to be thought that the brain never makes new neurons, that once your brain is in in place, it's in place, and and neurons can die, but they can't be recreated. But in fact, it turns out there are at least parts of the brain, like the hippocampus, which is the structure that is involved in consolidating memory, actually grows with experience. And you have a fantastic example in your book about cabbies in London, who I don't know if this is still true with the age of GPS.
1: I wondered that too. I'm like, are they using, are they not using Google maps?
0: But there was, they, had, they got tested on their knowledge of the streets or the map of London really rigorous test, a tremendous feat of memory in order to really have it all in your mind, in your memory. And it was discovered that London cabbies have a larger portion of their hippocampus. And the question was, is that because people who have the larger hippocampus can remember more? Or is it that the act of memorizing all this stuff enlarges the hippocampus? And the answer was more of the latter.
1: That's correct. And I think it's that that study of those series of studies and the way um, they investigated brains of these hopeful cab drivers as they went about studying for this test shows us a couple of things. One is that our brain is continually adapting to the jobs that we give it, right? So in this series of studies, what they found was that there weren't any brain areas that reliably predicted at the beginning of studying who would eventually pass this very onerous tests, like remembering tens of thousands of street maps of London and the surrounding areas. Only about 50% of the people who take the test pass it. One of the reliable, one of if not the only reliable predictor of who would pass this test is how many hours they spent studying. So this is hopeful for people who are trying to do something hard. The effort put in was the best predictor of who would um, pass this test. But after the studying, the brains of the people who passed the test, got bigger in this hippocampal region that's specific to like spatial and episodic memories. But what was interesting is that if you put those brains up against a person who had a very similar job, and that was the London bus drivers, so what can a cab driver do now that they've shoved all of these maps into their brain and their hippocampus in this area has grown, what can they do differently? And so bus drivers also have to navigate these really complex streets, read traffic signs and so forth and so on. But unlike the cab drivers, they're driving the same route or a finite set of routes over and over. And they didn't have to memorize all of these maps. And it turns out that while there were a lot of things that both groups did similarly, like remembering stories, the cab drivers were better able to recognize landmarks, report the distance between things in their in their recollected memory of maps, et cetera. But the bus drivers were better able to learn new information, particularly if it was a list of words. So that might be, you might think of that as somewhere on the opposite spectrum of having a bunch of maps in your brain. So lists of words, new words, uh, the bus drivers outperformed the cab drivers, the ability to draw something new from memory, the bus drivers outperformed the cab drivers. So The the takeaway here is that as the cab driver's brains became morphed to be better at the job that they needed to do, they lost some ability to do things that weren't specific to their job. And so I use this as an illustration that different doesn't have to map on to better or worse. This is a brain that has a prioritization for a certain kind of memory that is needed for that kind of job. And I think we get in a trap too often of deciding this way of behaving is good. This way of attending is good. There's this idea of fluid intelligence and some people are better at everything than other people. And I think these are really narrowly defined on a small set of jobs that we might ask our brain to do in the broader scheme of understanding what kinds of problems we ask our brain to solve every day and in our evolutionary history.
0: And this relates also to a finding about people with very severe and prolonged depressions, This is that the hippocampus tends to shrink. And I think has uh, said, oh, you see the d- depression damages the brain, but it could very well be a temporary effect that when, so- when someone is severely depressed, they tend to withdraw and they, they tend to not focus as well. And so they're not remembering as many things. And if it's for a long period of time, maybe the hippocampus does shrink. And then once the depression is over, it, re- it re- resumes its old size.
1: I think that's very plausible. And I agree with you that you have a restricted set of memories. That's one of the problems, perseverating and things like this is one of the.
0: Yeah, of, of creating of new memories. All right, let's go on and t- talk about the hemispheres, because that's, I think, a really interesting topic, the idea that each of us doesn't have just one brain. But in a, in a sense, we it's almost as if we have two separate brains that are they are interconnected, of course, but they're quite different from each other. And that's really fascinating we're used to having sort of two of things. We have two eyes, two, two ears, two nostrils, but each of those do similar, almost the same exact thing. But with the brain, they're really different. So how, how could that be and why is it that way?
1: I, this is a question that's near and dear to my heart. It's something that I've been working on since my PhD. But let me talk about why it's near and dear to my heart. I think that the idea of a left brain analytical type or a right brain creative type is one of the only individual differences, neuroscience concepts that the pop culture has picked up. And it's not quite right.
0: It's a little bit oversimplified or a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a lot oversimplified, but it's based on this research with corpus callosotomy patients, which are colloquially called split brain patients. So you were saying in most of us, are we have these two hemispheres of the brain that are connected by a massive bundle of white matter fibers called, called the corpus callosum. So even if we have two kind of different views of the world inside our head, they're sharing information so rapidly that most of us perceive the world as an integrated whole human being.
0: Yeah. Let me just mention that these the, the split-brain patients, their the brains were not split for the sake of science. <laughs> it was split to, to reduce uh, epileptic seizures.
1: <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that because the reputation is, precedes me. Yes, that's correct. Roger Sperry, Michael Gazzaniga were the leaders of this field where to attempt to cure intractable epilepsy that was resistant to medication, they severed this connection between hemispheres. So this way, at least if the electrical kind of storm of the brain was spreading profusely from one in one hemisphere, it could not go to the other hemisphere. So at least it was forcing these things to be localized to one hemisphere of the brain.
0: Right. And the corpus callosum is not the only connection. It's just the main one.
1: Right. Correct, correct. There are subcortical connections and so forth and so on. But what's interesting and what Michael Gazanaga, who was the graduate student on this program, on this project of research at the time, noticed anecdotally is that, so first, when you present pictures to a person's brain, the world is divided not by left eye, right eye, but by the left half of your visual world, which goes into the right side of both eyes and then back to the left hemisphere. It's like whenever I have to figure this out, it's like doing the Macarena, it switches back, but I have a map of this. So you can talk to the two hemispheres of the brain and decide what they know and how they can understand the world in these patients with the split brains by flashing images to one hemisphere or the other.
0: While they're looking straight at a dot, straightforward.
1: Exactly. While they're focusing on a dot, you flash an image to the left or right side of the screen or a word to the left or the right side of the screen, and then you ask them to behave. For most people, when they're speaking, that's primarily coming from the left hemisphere. If they're using their right hand, it's also coming from the left hemisphere. So to talk to the right hemisphere, for most people, you need to ask the left hand to draw things. So in these series of experiments, we learned something about what the left and that hemisphere can do. But I want to tell you where the idea of the left hemisphere, analytical, right hemisphere, creative type came from. It came from what Gazzaniga noticed with these. And that is that when he asked their right hemisphere to do something, so when he asked their left hand to say, draw what you saw on the screen. The left hand would draw something that was different than what the patient reported seeing, because the patient reports verbally what their left hemisphere saw. So let's say for instance, they see a picture of a sun is presented to their left hemisphere. And a, a picture of a timer, something like that, like a sand timer, is presented to their right hemisphere. And they draw this sand timer. This is one thing I've seen um, on YouTube on an, an interview with him. And the person, you ask the person what they saw. They say, I saw a sun. You ask them to draw with their left hand what they saw. They draw this picture of a timer. And then when they draw the picture, their left hemisphere sees it. So their left hemisphere wasn't aware of the timer until they see it being drawn. But then what Gazaniga noticed was that these patients would not, they could fabulate it. They would make up seamlessly a story about why they drew a timer. And so they would say, oh, I was thinking about a sundial. I saw the sun. I must have been thinking of a sundial. And I drew this timer. So this left hemisphere was spontaneously integrating what it remembered seeing with what it had drawn. It was trying to explain a behavior that it didn't have privy to the cause of. And he called this part of the left hemisphere the interpreter. And this is where the idea of an analytical left hemisphere was
0: born. It really speaks to how important it is for people to have one reality. (laughs) We can't tolerate having multiple realities in in one person.
1: Exactly. It's anecdotally, when these patients first get their corpus callosum severed, their two hands will compete for controlling their actions oftentimes. Vicky is one of the patients that's been studied frequently, reported that she'd walk to the closet and she would think what she's telling the experimenters is about the experience of her left hemisphere. This is the speaking hemisphere. So she would think, I'm going to my closet and I want to wear this particular dress or these this pantsuit but her left hand would grab something else or the same kind of a thing at the grocery store so the two hands the two hemispheres have different sometimes have different ideas about how to behave and when there isn't that mediating or integrating effect there's a period of time in which she would wrestle she, she was convinced the her sense of self was more clearly tied to this left hemisphere. So she would wrestle her left hand down to the ground to get the thing that she wanted. And then eventually it gives up or something.
0: It sounds like Dr. Strangelove. I remember hearing about a, a neuroscientist named Jill Bolt Taylor, who had a massive stroke in her left hemisphere that created a giant blood clot. And her, the way she described it is her left brain went offline. And as she's struggling to call nine one one, she also feels euphoric. <laughs> she feels like a totally blissed out Nirvana experience, and she wrote a book about this, I believe, about how I guess she she felt very motivated to recover this feeling of Nirvana to the extent that she could even after she recovered. Fortunately, her brain injury was mostly reversible, but it it's, it speaks to what you talk about in, in your book: the the left brain being more involved in sequence and prediction and that sort of cause and effect learning. Whereas the right brain takes in everything all at once to the most extent. And it's so it's really in the now. The, the way you hear people who talk about the goal of meditation <laughs> is to be in the now. The right brain does that all the time. And I remember in, in a psychology textbook, seeing pictures of a face where the left side is reproduced by a mirror. So that one face is left, the left side on both sides, in a sense, the left side is reflected. So you're seeing a face. What would the face look like if the the Right had looked exactly like the left side, and vice versa, and the one that's based on the the left side of the face, which is the right side of the brain, looks so peaceful, and the one that had the, that was the right side of the face produced by the left side of the brain, looked much more tense
1: that is so interesting, yeah, so. One of, I think, the most remarkable individual differences, and something that everybody can intuit without coming into the lab, is how different these two points of view are inside your own head. So I called this lopsidedness in my book. So we do, we all have two different perspectives. And one of the things that I find fascinating is that in the book, I go through, I think, three different possible stories or explanations about why our two hemispheres understand the world in different ways. Some are biologically driven, some are function driven, and I think that they can all be integrated together into sort of a functional anatomical understanding of why our two hemispheres do different things. But not all of us have striking differences between hemispheres. So one theory about why most people are right-handed is that over time, our right hemisphere, which controls the left hand, has become evolutionarily disadvantaged. So it has shrank in strongly handed left lateralized people. And that the benefit of having this sort of shrunken right hemisphere is that when the two halves of your brain have different capabilities, the job assignment becomes very systematic. So people who are highly verbal, who learn to read early, probably do well in school and these kind of like causal reasoning, analogical reasoning experiments are actually having a smaller uh, right hemisphere than people who have more balanced brains. So this comes potentially at a cost for things like spatial navigation. So one way that you can figure out how different the two hemispheres of your brain are is to do thought experiments or actual experiments to ask about the motor skills of the two halves of your body. So handedness is not a dichotomous variable, it's actually a continuum. And some people uh, are strongly right-handed simply because their left hands are miserable at doing the things that we, the jobs that we assign to our right hands. And other people are more balanced, their left hand is more skilled. So as you go from being, highly lopsided to more balanced brained, what actually happens is that your non-dominant hand increases in the kinds of things that it can do. So in these balanced brain individuals, they may be more at risk for things like dyslexia, which relies on a very new human skill, the ability to learn through thousands of hours of practice to translate a visual part of the world into a verbal part of the world. People who have more balanced brains tend to be better at understanding the big picture, at using systems. And they tend to be people who integrate what's happening, integrate lots of different pieces of sensory information into the big picture of what's happening now, rather than just predicting the future on an isolated or module basis. So I call them forest and tree kinds of thinking. And so you can ask, you can do on my website, ChantelPratt.com, there's a research tab where you can get links to lots of different games you can play. There's a hit the dot button where you use a mouse to click as many dots as you can in 60 seconds with your left and right hands to actually measure their comparable skills. Or you can think about how you go upstairs with your right or left leg, or how you kick a ball, or there are lots of other exercises in the book that let you figure out how these motor skills are.
0: And of course, these things are somewhat or largely trainable. So anyone who plays a musical instrument, if you play the violin or guitar, I mean, your left hand, even if you're right-handed, has to get awfully skilled (laughs) in order to play. You have to be able to use both sides. And also, there are so many tasks that involve both parts of the brain doing different things. So for instance, when we speak, the semantic meaning of it is in the left brain, but the intonation of the speech and the the infusion of of emotion and meaning is more from the right brain. It's not as if there are people who live entirely on one side and not the other, unless they've had a hemispherectomy, which is a really severe (laughs) intervention for for seizures.
1: To be avoided.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's really interesting how how the two hemispheres can contribute to the learning process. For instance, the learning to read, we tend to think of it as being only left brain, but there must be right brain components to it because if you read purely from the left brain, and I still remember in second grade, <laughs> most of the kids reading were reading like one syllable at a time, and it didn't sound like a very meaningful sentence. And the, the kids in the class that were already more advanced can actually make it sound like a, a really meaningful sentence. Right. And
1: that goes back to the prosody and is this going to be a, can I, is this going to be a question or a statement or do I know what part of speech this is? And the story, the sentence I use in the book to talk about the two hemispheres is the haystack was important because the cloth ripped. And a person who speaks English fluently knows what all of those words mean. They know that they're haystack. They know cloth. They know that there's some causal relationship. For some reason, this cloth, the act of the cloth ripping makes the haystack important. But if you don't know what's going on, you have this feeling that this is like colorless green ideas, sleep furiously. It's like a nonsensical sentence. And then if I give you a single title, parachuting suddenly that's that right hemisphere, big picture, because when we read, we're go- we're moving from s- sounds to words, to meaning, to the organization of these words and context to this scenario. And uh, oftentimes we use our real world knowledge about parachutes and gravity. And now we can think about the properties of haystack that can explain why it's important. So like you said, reading comprehension involves the seamless integration between the bits of sequences of letters or sounds that are, if you're, if it's oral language, coming into your ears and your real world knowledge, bringing that to bear to flesh out these things and what they might mean in a given context.
0: Creating the context, the right brain creating the context. And then, then you have situations where it goes in the other direction. You start out with more of a right brain, like for instance, music appreciation is probably more right brain, but learning to play an instrument has to be involve the left brain really massively, learning how to control the fingers and learning how to read music, things that are very much left brain. And then, you know, a very advanced musician has to have both very well integrated.
1: In fact, there's some research suggesting that as musical expertise advances, it moves from being this right brain holistic to a left brain kind of sequential process. But of course, they're doing both. They're feeling and everything like that.
0: They're doing both, and, and yet you might have some musicians who are, let's say, driven to excel at it because of maybe they have a tiger mama. Or something, <laughs> but, but not necessarily playing with enough of musicality and feeling, which is more of the right Correct. brain. So you can learn to play very advanced at a very advanced level without that much right brain, but the audience will know.
1: <laughs> and I suspect, uh, yeah, I was going to say, I suspect that there are in art and music, that there are people who master their craft by following the rules or expectations. And there are people who master their craft by breaking them. Right. But either way, you need to know the rules and the predictions and the the techniques, and then you can play around. And I think that's also a left, right brain.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that your husband thinks more in pictures. And I I assume when you said that means that you don't, that you think more in words.
1: Correct. Correct. I think almost exclusively in words.
0: Yes, I guess that would be an example of your husband having maybe a more right brain involvement than you do.
1: Yes. And it's very interesting because my husband is he learned to speak late, but he's also a bilingual. So that happens when he reads. This is something that's fascinating to me when he reads. There's no it doesn't translate into an audible book. When I read, I see a word, I hear the word. And then I might build this scenario or the movie. But when he reads, it goes straight from the visual word form to the movie unfolding, which I think is very fascinating. And even like when he has an emotional reaction to something, it's a feeling or a feeling plus an image. It's not like hearing the voice.
0: Right. And and Einstein famously said that he thought in pictures uh, and that he learned to, to speak late. I think at three, I think.
1: Yeah, Einstein's brain is fascinating. Actually, there have been several books written on Einstein's brain, and you were talking about musicians, and it's there's a rumor that Einstein was left-handed, although the sort of biographical accounts say, no, he was indeed right-handed. But he had this large, what we call the hand knob in his in his right hemisphere, which is the opposite of a right-hander, but he was a violinist. And you actually see this in all violinists, like as you were saying, you, you have to do refined moment movements with both hands. So it's really funny to try and think about this back to your original question. How do you understand yourself through the lens of the brain? I wish there were a lot of people writing books about famous characters based on their brains, like the autobiography or the biography of Einstein through his brain. I don't think the science is there yet, but it's really fun to look at his brain, which is strange in a lot of ways.
0: But again, we don't know if it started out strange or it became strange because of what he was doing his whole life.
1: <laughs> exactly, and the violin is, the hand knob is a great example of that.
0: By analogy, and you look at a violinist, you can tell they're a violinist by looking at their left hand at just the tips of their fingers because they have some very specific calluses. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly, so we, we can save a lot of money on that MRI. <laughs>
0: Exactly, exactly. With the little time that we have left, I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about dopamine. So dopamine, supposedly the uh, pleasure chemical, the uh, neurotransmitter involved in such transmissions. And and I just wanted to clarify a, a possible misunderstanding. It's not as if we have a reservoir of dopamine in our brains. We have different kinds of neurons that work with different kinds of neurotransmitters. And the dopaminergic neurons are the ones that have been implicated in the experience of pleasure. So it's not as if people who, let's say, don't experience pleasure easily somehow have a deficit of dopamine. It's possible, but it's very unlikely. And it seems that it would have more to do with how the dopaminergic neurons are interconnected with each other and with other neurons. Somehow they're not set up in a way that makes it, them easily uh, makes it easy for them to to stimulate the the pleasure centers.
1: So it can be related to receptors or like the ears. I, I call the dopamine one of the neurochemicals or like chemical languages of the brain, right? So we have different numbers of dopamine receptors. Um, there are genes that encode for different types of dopamine receptors. So there are two general classes of dopamine receptors ones that when dopamine binds to them they are they excite the brain so this is facilitating dopamine communication and then we have dopamine receptor types that when dopamine is present they actually inhibit or shut down communication circuits it's complicated but i think one thing that's really that many people don't know is that this motivation to feel good that dopamine is not just a feel-good chemical, it's a critical learning chemical, that dopamine signals in the brain let us know whether some action is better or worse than we expected it to be. And when an action, the outcome of an action is better than you expect it to be, your brain releases dopamine. And when dopamine binds with those excitatory chemicals, it increases the connections between these circuits, which make you more likely to do that, the things that led you to that good thing again in the future.
0: Right. So this is a kind of an underpinning of addiction because you can't get the same pleasure from the same experience. The experience has to be different in some way. The way you say it in your book is you only get the really big burst of dopamine when something is surprisingly good, or if a known decision ends up being even better than you imagine it would be. So there's something about, it has to to have this newness to it.
1: Correct. And sometimes on that note, sometimes you get a dopamine burst when something is less bad than you expect it to be. So it's not the absolute goodness or badness of your environment, but it's the error signal. It's the difference between how you thought it would work out and how it actually works out. And that's because you're driving the dopamine signal then drives learning, drives the connections. It changes your prediction in the future.
0: Yeah. And one of the really fascinating things you talked about is that the brain sometimes turns down the volume of dopaminergic neurons. So for instance, if there's something that you really want, but it's going to be painful, your brain is able to actually reduce the pain signaling in order to get what you really want.
1: That's the curiosity piece, which I think is, again, like why dopamine drives motivation and learning. Like one of my favorite things about the human brain is that it treats information like a reward. If you're curious about something, your brain is estimating that knowing that thing is going to be rewarding. Just like the same circuits are active when you give somebody a trivia question that they're they're interested in, as when you give somebody a picture of a piece of food, like an ice cream or a hamburger or something, and they're hungry and they wanna eat that food. The brain treats information like a reward. And I think that's why it's important to acknowledge and appreciate the uncertainty in our lives because being curious opens up the brain for these information rewards and for subsequent learning and, and change and growth.
0: So once again, it, it seems that it's not as simple as we thought as the general public might think, but I'm really hopeful that your book is really stimulate people's curiosity, especially people who already have some curiosity about the brain, it will make them even more curious and that they'll have plenty of dopamine released as they learn more and more about the brain.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. I try to make plenty of funny and um, interesting things in there to let the, the knowledge about dopamine go down a little bit Uh, more smoothly. One of the people in my writing group said, I feel like you're one of those moms who would put vegetables in the dessert. (laughs) And I was like, thank you, I think, (laughs) based on a piece of writing that I did about the brain, where they were accidentally curious and they learned a lot.
0: Wonderful. I want to thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Chantel Pratt, a professor at the University of Washington at the Departments of Psychology, Neuroscience, and Linguistics who recently uh, published a book, The Neuroscience of You, How Every Brain is Different and How to Understand Yours. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.